Hello, welcome to another moment with Eric Fleming. I am your host, Eric Fleming. And uh, today's episode is special for me because um, it's one of the few times, well, actually it's the first time that uh, I really get to talk to a friend, uh, somebody that I've worked with, somebody that I that I know uh, and greatly respect. Uh, one advantage of doing a podcast is that you get to meet a lot of people who are smarter than you. And uh, this guest is definitely one of those folks. Uh, her name is Alicia Johnson Perry. She is currently the director of donor programs at Mississippi Gulf Coast Community Foundation. And based on her work, that's what we're going to be talking about uh, on this show about uh, Black philanthropy. Uh, this is August has been designated Black Philanthropy Month. And so uh, I'm glad that I've got somebody that is good at at philanthropy work uh, who I can call a friend who is willing to come on. So let me do my usual intro and uh, we'll get right into it. Alicia Johnson Perry's fundraising career is grounded in social justice. Following three years as development director for the Mississippi Immigrants Rights Alliance, 2007 to 2010, Alicia became development manager of Edible Schoolyard, New Orleans, First Line School's signature garden-based food and nutrition access and education program, established post-Katrina to address food insecurity employing sensibilities for relationship and consensus building. Alicia's leadership contributed to the growth of the organization's lead fundraiser and edible evening, resulting in a 250% increase in annual gross receipts. Since 2011, Alicia has collaborated with an integral team of fundraising and communication staff, civic leaders, and philanthropists to lever leverage, excuse me, hundreds of thousands of volunteer hours and local, regional, and national dollars towards strategic school-based initiatives that nurture first-line students in mind, body, and spirit. A native New Orleanian who was introduced to not-for-profit service in high school, Alicia feels at home in nonprofit fundraising. Her undergraduate degree in journalism and Spanish 10 years as a Louisiana State Legislative Assistant and Juris Doctorate from Loyola Law School ground her persuasive amplification of marginalized communities. Alicia is a member of the Association of Fundraising Professionals, ABFE, and Education Leader of Color. She became a CFRE on November 16, 2021. Uh, and she became the director of donor programs at Mississippi Gulf Coast Community Foundation in February of 2022. Her favorite hobbies are writing, reading, and playing Scrabble. Uh, yeah, she's a killer in Scrabble. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, I present to you Alicia Johnson Perry. Oh, 
thanks for this opportunity. It's it's welcome. I'm wanting to want to help promote this a lot more. So well, you, you're going to get your chance, ladies and gentlemen. This is Alicia Johnson Perry, my friend, my former co-worker. How you doing? Oh, I'm well. I'm well, Eric. It's so good to see you and see you continuing to move and shake and, and just keep your, your hand on the pulse of all things important. Well, I... I appreciate you doing the same thing, and you, you're. And I told folks in the intro, you're a lot smarter than me, uh, so you're uh, probably doing it better. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> At least you stayed down. So, we can argue about that offline. <laughs> yes, ma'am. All right. Well, look, um, we talked about you do philanthropy work, and uh, August is been declared Black Philanthropy Month. Why is that? Why August? Yeah, uh, well, I, I, what I know about uh, August, in addition to it being Black Philanthropy Month, is that it's also Black Business Month. I don't know if you knew that, but I'm, I'm recently learning that from a lot of my friends and family members who are, um, who are small business owners um, and emerging and you know blossoming business owners, um, and it seems quite appropriate um, to continue to focus on um, the, the movement of money uh, in and out of our community, um, the injustice uh, around money getting to our community. Um, and, and that's where Black philanthropy, that's a part of the Black philanthropy conversation is, um, you know, how money gets to us, um, you know, how we are aware of it, how we would access it, um, what are limitations in, in, in using it in the way that's best for our community. Um, and, uh, and, and of course, you know, all the other ways that, um, that money is coming, uh, with, you know, that's flowing within our community. Um, you know, I think, uh, Jackie Bouvier Copeland, who, uh, came up with this idea with a, um, a group of women, um, about almost, I'd say almost, um, 20 years ago, um, was concerned just with the whole idea that, uh, there was a misbelief that, Black folk don't give, you know, like black folk don't give and all the things that you hear around um, our community as though we are the, the most stingy and, um, and non-caring non uh, community when uh, there's so much, so much history, so much knowledge and so much contemporary proof that um, the, the black community gives the largest percentage of our, of our income or of our of our resources um you know it may not be as much as other more privileged communities when you when you match it dollar for dollar but it's the higher percentage of because we are we know what it's like to struggle we know what it's like to not have access to to capital and resources um and so in this month of of august um we're talking about you know not just how many gets to us um uh, you know, from outside, you know, entities, but also how we have supported our, ourselves, um, you know, when money was flowing, when money wasn't flowing, um, and how we can continue to support our, ourselves by supporting black businesses who um, tend to turn around and put it right back into the community, sending kids to school, you know, um, taking care of children who um, who may have come come across hard times and, and families, just families coming together. So it makes sense that um, that Black Philanthropy Month um, is is tied or matched with um, Black 
business month and I just hope that I'm I have committed to a personal um growth uh per, you know trajectory around just how how finances work um and how I can improve myself and my role as a as a fundraising professional um and helping us to understand all the many ways that we can give um besides cash giving. I'm gonna learn a lot about how we can give non-cash giving um through plan plan gifts and, and that sort of thing. So what got you interested in doing this kind of work? You you have a pretty diverse background, but you've always managed to do stuff dealing with raising money for nonprofits. What what got in your heart to do that? So um, it, interesting, you've been with me since the very beginning. I don't know if you knew that, <laughs> but, um, you know, I, uh, as you remember, when we met, I was just coming out of uh, law school and also I was on the evacuation trail. Um, I found my way to Jackson from um, uh, a batter, well, uh, a temporary shelter that was a battered woman's shelter before Katrina, but then um, was turned into uh, a shelter for just anyone who was um, willing to help support the recovery in New Orleans. Um, and I, I couldn't find a job in New Orleans as a new graduate, law school graduate. And, um, but I had heard about this opportunity in, uh, in Jackson, Mississippi with the Mississippi Immigrants Rights Alliance. Um, I was just finishing up law school and thought that I wanted to go into immigration law. So I was like, wow, what an awesome, you know, awesome way to, you know, kind of be mentored in that field while I'm developing those skills um, and also be employed because nobody can, not even real lawyers can work right now in New Orleans. Um, and was, I don't know, as the universe opened up and I was introduced to Mira and um, and came in as a paralegal. I don't know if you remember this, came in as a paralegal, but the um, grant writer was exiting as I was coming in and uh, literally um, the 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 leaders, uh, the directors of that organization said, "Well, you can you can stay a paralegal, but these doors might close, you know, or you can stretch and learn something new, you know." And so I never heard of development work um, before then, but they could see that I knew how to write and I knew how to think and I knew how to follow directions. And I don't want to minimize that, you know, um, that that's all it takes to do the work I do, but that's the foundation, you know, being able, and, and I've learned over the years that it's also being connected to a cause that I'm passionate about um, and being able to make the case for a donor to give to my organization versus another. So when my, when my uh, aunt occasionally from time to time, you know, every five years, she kind of circles back and says, so when are you going to use that law degree, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and I have like figured out that I am using my law degree. Um, again, you know, not only in my new role at the Community Foundation, um, but also um, just in general, like making the case, like I said, you know, uh, before a panel of judges, you know, you who are writing checkbooks, you know, writing checks for your checkbook or press and send or, you know, donate the donate button. There are hundreds of thousands of amazing organizations out there. And I need to be able to tell my organization's story. Um, and connected to a need, connected to an outcome, um, be able to show impact um, and convince you to, you know, to support my organization. Um, and so it's been, it's really been amazing. I got, I got a really great start at Mira. Um, and, and what I want to say about that is that um, 
I was learning the field as I was just being introduced there um, to development work and fundraising. But it was really the it was the grantors who were committed to making sure that organizations who were supporting um, underserved and underrepresented organizations had the staff development and and the capacity to go to grantors who didn't look like us, who didn't live in communities like us, who, you know, unless it was happening to them, it wasn't really happening. Like, you know, it was NCLR, the National uh, Council of Larasa. It was Oxfam. Um, there were several organizations that would like host little trainings and then they would assign program officers to people like me who didn't know what what does a short-term goal mean? What is a smart objective? Like, I didn't know what that language was, but they were making sure that, you know, those of you who are representing brown people are not going to get this information from anybody but us. And we will sit with you and help you understand what these terms mean so that you can make your case. And, um, and so fast forwarding, you know, through the three to almost four years that I was working with Nita, you know, as an evacuee, so to speak, um, and I say so to speak, because I think I also remember you always saying, okay, aren't you a resident now, <laughs> you know, of Mississippi? And I was like, nope, I'm going back <laughs> home. And so when I got back home to New Orleans a few years later, um, I was looking for an organization where I could use these skills and, um, you know, and the passion I had for fundraising and storytelling and and finding resources that could help the community and the organization that I was working for. And, um, and I was really blessed to eventually begin working at First Line Schools with um, a garden and culinary education program that started off as, as really an answer to food deserts and, um, and, ra and racial injustice around access to, to good food. And, um, and I stayed there for 11 years before um, I, I moved to my new role. So that's kind of the, the start and, you know, I'm not going to say the end, but, you know, it's it's the next chapter for me. Yeah, so I appreciate you growing because that gave me an opportunity to get employed, too, uh, over there because I ended up, I took your job, as a matter of fact, the paralegal thing. Um, so one of the things I did want to highlight when I reached out to you was it's been 17 years since Katrina happened. Mm -hmm. How has philanthropy work? You mentioned the work you were doing, uh, dealing with uh, the garden and, and setting up uh, a remedy for food deserts. How has philanthropy played a role in not only dealing with New Orleans, but the Gulf Coast? Because basically the whole Mississippi, Louisiana, Gulf Coast and some parts of Alabama was affected. And since you are working now in Biloxi, how has philanthropy work helped those areas recover? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's, it, in some ways, it was so different back then. Um, you know, we were on our knees and, and some, some of us on our bellies, um, you know, uh, after Hurricane Katrina. And, um, and that was also a time where people saw the, the need, they couldn't turn away from it. Um, and so you just saw, you know, hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars, you know, just being pumped into this area. Um, and at, actually, it was kind of the golden years for being a fundraiser, um, not to uh, not to be um, insensitive, because I am a, a Hurricane uh, Katrina survivor and, and champion. Um, 
but um, but you know to come into fundraising at that time um, was um, it actually was very enlightening. It was you had to learn quick, but the money was flowing. The money was coming um, this way. What I observed then, you know, that I didn't realize I was observing that now that I've been in philanthropy for 15 years, um, I know what I was seeing was that um, there was definitely a tendency for money to come to organizations that were not led by community members, you know, um, and so if you ran the big organizations that were, you know, most likely um, uh, run with run by boards that were not necessarily representative of the communities that were being served, uh, but they had the, the privilege and the status and the relationships, et cetera, um, you were more likely to get those funds. Um, and then by the time it trickled down to the actual, you know, actually getting into the community, you know, only percentage of those funds were actually getting to the people who were going door to door and making sure that, you know, you had diapers for your baby and you had, you know, the, the food that you needed and, and, and the housing support and all the things. Um, and so um, I, I also had the, the privilege of working for um, an organization that had some privilege, you know, the, the leadership um, and, you know, educational privilege um, you know, racial privilege um, as, as it, within the leadership. Um, and, and so I didn't realize what was happening until I got back home. And I would just hear from more individuals um, who were community-based saying like, all that money that came to the coast, we didn't see any of it, you know? Um, and so, and over the years, I've been able to observe and also wrestle with the privilege that I have. Um, as a fundraiser, as a fundraiser of of color, um, but a fundraiser of color on the more proximity to whiteness side, you know, as a fundraiser of color um, who has um, a law degree, you know, like you know all of those layers of privilege. Um, um, if I'm not aware of it, like I could get caught up in um, just like trying to trying to just show how much money I can raise to, to show who I am as, as a, a professional and, um, and forget that like the, the money that's coming through is connected to individuals, you know, you know family members and children and, um, and they're addressing all, all sorts of needs that I may or may not um, ever know uh, or I may not have known for many decades. Um, and, and so it's important for me to make sure that I'm keeping my ear to the ground. I'm showing up in meetings. I'm asking questions um, that I'm not writing a grant without asking how this grant is actually going to happen, you know, um, be uh, implemented, and how this program is going to be implemented, and um, and whether it's practical. Um, and I was learning, and I've I've learned over the years. I've been in those awkward positions where. I'm writing the grant, it's on a deadline, you know, and it's like, oh, I don't know the answer to this. I don't really know if this is gonna work really in the trenches, you know? I mean, I guess it's the difference between being on the grass top and being the grass roots. I mean, we're still in the grass, but there's still, there are people in the trenches who are doing this work. And, and so I'm constantly challenging myself to, um, to be aware of my privilege and, um, and to, 
and to amplify the voices of the people who are actually being impacted by the work. And that's something that I'm always going to be challenged by. I'm working at a community foundation now. Um, you know, it, the, there are diversity, equity, and inclusion goals, but it's, it takes a while to get to those goals. Um, and so, um, and so I'm, it's an added layer to my work, but it's important to me because I come from those communities. Um, and I want to make sure that we are, um, we're representing them and we are, um, and we're uh, strategic in a way that is supportive of the community and not making assumptions based on what we, what we think. So kind of the, the, to play off that, cause you, you mentioned that right after Katrina happened during the recovery period, that was kind of the golden years. And I, and I definitely understand that being in Mississippi during that time and actually being elected during that time, it was a, it was an amazing thing, but you also alluded to now it's, it's well, by saying that, that it's not as easy. So the question I have is what has been the challenges and or opportunities of black philanthropy since the summer of 2020? Because mm. we, we had a lot of corporations come out and do commercials and make commitments. And I, I did a podcast kind of asking, so where is the money? So since you do this kind of work, has that money been coming or has there been some hiccups in, in getting that kind of money? Mm-hmm. I, I have seen, I, that's a really great question. I'm, I'm glad that you raised it um, because I have seen um, initiatives that um, definitely right after, you know, the, the uh, summer of 2020, um, you're seeing a lot more funds that were specifically focused on like literally unapologetic, unapologetically saying um, we want to support black boys or we want to support you know, black girls. And these were coming from, you know, organizations that were run predominantly by, you know, um, non-people of color or people of non-color, whatever, <laughs> anyway. Um, but, you know, where they would not have said it in the past or said it out loud or, um, or even thought about it, suddenly they were like, okay, we have to be clear what side we're on. And we want to make sure, you know, for whatever reason, whether it's checking boxes or whether it's to make sure I'm I'm still in good graces with my friend, you know, like I have to, you know, I have to do the right thing. Um, and, and I can say that, and I don't know if you feel it, but it's, it's waning, you know, that commitment is waning, you know, um, I, I mean, the organization that I was working with, um, you know, for many years was finally starting to move towards um, hosting regular sessions where we come together, you know, and uh, race and equity sessions. And we've been partnered with um, a gentleman um, named Matthew Kincaid. He has the Overcoming Racism program, uh, an amazing program. Uh, so many ideas and, and just things I had never heard of, like the birth of whiteness. Like I had never, I didn't realize that that wasn't a thing until a certain, you know, period in time, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, and, and, very diverse groups of us were sitting in the space, you know, wrestling with discomfort um, and and being okay with um, not coming to a solution, but just like, you know, creating and holding space for those conversations. Um, and, and you saw a lot of that, you know, um, across nonprofits, across businesses, um, and, and those 
meetings have had had you know have begun to slowly um, wane. Um, you see them being a lot more focused on just just general you know uh, differences you know um, and which is not to minimize that at all, but it's to say that often when we have to deal with the really difficult um, the, the wrestle with the difficult um, issue of race and um, race and racial inequity. Um, we don't have a muscle for that. We haven't built the muscle for it. And it literally, it's like going to the gym. It's painful, you know, it's, and it's something that like, when I develop a memory of that pain, I don't want to go back to that pain, you know, and it's, and it's, and I have to keep working on my mindset, you know, in order to remind myself that there's something good at the other side of the pain, you know, and, and again, when I'm speaking on, you know, physical fitness and helping and taking care of myself, you know, and it's the same thing except it's a little bit different because on the other side of, of this pain, you know, for people who are not from communities of color, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to negotiate with yourself to say on the other side of this pain, things are going to get better, but it actually might not be better for me. It might be better for the whole society. You know, it actually might make Thanksgiving conversations harder, you know, it actually might make relationships that I was kind of, you know, tiptoeing around, like even more difficult, you know, and so, and so like, again, I just want to acknowledge like this is hard work. Um, and while none of us necessarily, while we were, um, uh, while we inherited it, you know, we are responsible for taking the next right step to continue to diminish and diminish and move away from the systems that have set us up um, to keep certain people at certain you know places uh, in society um, while we just blindly walk around un unaware of our privilege. So you 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 touched on this next question a little bit um, because you talk about that it's hard to have these conversations, right? What's the nuance of being a person of color? to do this kind of work to navigate those hard conversations? What's the advantage of being a person of color? Hmm. Well, the advantage of being a person of color, and I, and I read recently in a, an article um, written by a woman, um, and I, I apologize, her name slips me, but she talks about being a triple threat, you know, um, when you're a person of color uh, in the development field, um, because you have you have proximity to the, you know, the organization, many of the organizations and the individuals who are impacted by um, the, the powerful impact of, of positive philanthropy. And so, you know, and then adding on top of that, you know, having education and, um, and having passion and that sort of thing. Uh, and so that's the, that's the opportunity. That's the, the bright side of this work is that, you know, when I'm walking into spaces um, where I feel the negative side of this work, which is, you know, most of them don't look like me. They don't come from communities that like I can come from. Um, and I'm standing on the outside of, of a group of people talking, waiting to get left in, let in, or trying to push my way in, um, or just deciding to turn around and, you know, go uh, stand in the corner, you know, by myself or, 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 or not, or maybe, you know, engaging with individuals, but making sure to keep the conversation very, very surface. Like, it's just a lot, it's a lot of work, you know, it's a lot of, you know, and, and 
going back to what I said about Matthew Kincaid um, having this really great program overcoming racism, um, he talked about our navigational wealth. And that's what I have to keep remembering. Like this discomfort that I'm feeling also is an indication of the, the cultural, social, historical, navigational wealth that I have where I, I can walk into spaces and kind of know, you know, know my know my surroundings and when to have a conversation or how to have that conversation or how to plant a seed so that I could have a, a different conversation. Um, but it's physically, mentally, spiritually exhausting as a person of color um, because for a while I I was I saw myself as like just a glorified beggar. Like I would say that I'm just a glorified beggar. I'm just like walking around with my hat in hand all the time, you know, which was, which added to my sense of, my sense of internal shame because I, because I grew up with more of a, an awareness, um, to, you know, based on my education, the educational route I went, um, which was mostly PWI organizations, you know, um, that um, I was always aware that I was the only one in the room representing my whole culture, you know, my whole race, you know, and and um, and I had to have it all perfect. And if I didn't know it, I had to pretend I, di I did or I had to hide it, you know, because I didn't want to be misjudged and to misjudge my whole race, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and so now I'm more aware, you know, I, I mean, I'm older, I'm, you know, I'm older, you know, um, and so I'm aware that I don't carry that burden. Um, but, but yeah, I also, I also am older, so I know a lot of things that, and there are things people say that I just don't have a tolerance for, you know. Um, and so, yeah, just being able to navigate that and also be aware that, you know, there are people who have money who want to do good with it, um, regardless of what their um, cultural, you know, ethnic, racial background is. There are people who are aware. I mean, I'm reading articles right now about young people, Generation Z, you know, who have come from um, uh, just generations of wealth who want to do better than their great, grand, great, great, great grands, you know, and they're intentional about it, you know. Um, and so anyway, I want to focus on those people um, and I want to focus on um, continue just to do the work and myself at the end of the day black philanthropy starts with me it starts with every person of color and particularly every black person we can't expect other people to love us um, if we don't love ourselves um, and that's and black philanthropy is love of man basically it comes from that greek um, term love of man and um, and we have to love ourselves before we can uh, expect others to love us and then we we attract you know the beauty that we um that we exude from from our self-care so I'm, I'm grateful to be in this work well that's that's a great thought to end the interview on um just to remember that loving ourselves is 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 important component for us to go further and to advance in this society but before before i let you go uh, Talk about, well, how do people get in touch with the work that you're doing, the Gulf Coast Community Foundation? Um, so, yeah, um, I might, I can give you my what, email address or? Yeah, I mean, email, website, <laughs> whatever. Website, okay, okay. Okay, uh, yeah, shameless plug. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, so uh, Alicia Johnson Perry, I'm director of donor programs. I'd love to talk to you more about all the things that I'm learning about ways to give beyond just giving cash. Uh, the great position that I'm in at the Community Foundation is that um, I I know and am learning a lot about other amazing organizations in the community that we can help get money to, you know, um, and and support. Um, and you can make investments and grow your endowments, and, and there are just so many opportunities. So um, you can feel free to reach out to me at AJ, I'm sorry, AJ Perry, yes, AJ Perry, P E R R Y, at mgccf.org. Um, our website is www.mgccf.org. That's Gulf Coast, Mississippi Gulf Coast Community Foundation. Um, and um, you can also follow us on Facebook. Alicia, it was good talking to you. Uh, good seeing you. Um, yeah, and, great uh, seeing you too. And um, we'll uh, we'll get we'll get in touch soon. Uh, but, but continue to do that work. Um, it's important. Uh, I do the political stuff, uh, and um, you know, but but the the aspect of dollars that are not tied to government are are much much as as important if not more so i appreciate what you do all right thank you thanks and ladies and gentlemen we're going to catch y'all on the other side and so we are back um Excuse me. I hope that uh, Alicia's um, interview kind of put in perspective about why it's important for us. When I say us, I'm talking about African-American. You mean everybody, but particularly in the African-American community, why it's important for us uh, to give to causes and to uh, get engaged outside of just voting. Um, The most important thing we can do in a democracy is to vote, but we know that government can only do so much. And part of building America the way that we should is that we need to be involved in our community in one way, shape, or another. And giving to causes, doesn't matter how much you give, just give something because trust me, being somebody who has been in the nonprofit world, Every dollar means something. And there are a lot of people who give. And we want it to be more than a lot. (laughs) We want it to be everybody, right? At some point. Um, I'm one of those people that I wish I could give more the causes uh, because there's a lot of them out there that's worthy of being uh, 
supported. I've had guests who have projects that I I wish that I could personally give a lot of money to. Uh, so you, this podcast is a tool to get the message out there to people who can give uh, a lot more to causes. Uh, and that hopefully that you will support them. I mean, anywhere from giving away books to uh, classes, whatever. You know, just support things. And especially in the black community, continue to do that. Uh, as she dispelled a myth that black folks don't give, we do. We give charitably and we give politically. And we should be recognized for that. Not that we do it for recognition, but respect should be given that black folks give money. And we shouldn't stop. Let's put it that way. But giving also has not just you physically giving per se, but support sometimes is giving. Support of others physically giving to others. And I mentioned that the government is limited, but when the government does do something, we should be supportive of that. And yes, I'm getting ready to talk about the student loan debt forgiveness. I don't know if you picked up on it during the interview, but well, no, actually this was kind of a conversation offline. Um, You know, I had student loan debt. A lot of my friends have had student loan debt. Uh, I was fortunate mine wasn't that much. And I had some help in paying it off. And not everybody has that kind of help. Not everybody has that small amount of debt. And I'm going to get to the folks that have a huge amount of debt. But I want to address the people. First of all, let me deal with the hypocrites, right? So what I have noticed in America, people can say I'm wrong. That's fine. But what I've noticed in America is that if there's any program that will benefit black people in America, a a number of white people, I won't say a lot, but a significant number of white people, I would say millions of white people, have a problem with it. It is no doubt that the student loan debt forgiveness program that is being rolled out by President Biden and and the Department of Education, the U.S. Department of Education, is going to significantly help Black students and Black college graduates. 
Now, again, I'll address it a little later, but if you went to law school, if you went to medical school, it's a small drop in the bucket. But like I said, we'll get to that. But for those black students who went to community college, I'm of the age when we call it junior college, or went to a full four-year institution, public or private. If you qualified for a Pell Grant, $20,000 to help people out is a good thing. And we should celebrate when the United States government decides to help its citizens out, period. And I look at these people who, who criticize it and then turn right around and find out that during COVID, they, like everybody else, got PPP loans. Now, if you were of this principle that government spending and government debt forgiveness and all that stuff is a bad thing, why did you take the money? Why did you accept it? And since you accepted it, why not support other people? You got people that were getting hundreds of thousands of dollars in PPP forgiveness, but you're mad because a black kid is going to get 20000 in debt forgiveness? I mean, it doesn't even make sense. It shouldn't even be on your radar, right? And you can make the argument, well, the PPP was for a crisis. Debt is a crisis, whether there's a pandemic or not. And if, and if a student loan is stopping a human being, let alone a black human being, from buying a house, then we need to get rid of that barrier. Now, I wish that all student uh, debt could be forgiven. I wish that college tuitions would either freeze or go down. But having been in the legislative process myself and having fought battles to make sure that schools got the money they needed just to do restoration and repairs, right? Renovation and repairs, however you want to look at it. That's not an easy sell to a deliberative body. And if it wasn't an easy sell for 174 state legislators, just imagine what it's like for 535 federal legislators, right? Because you got to get a majority in both houses and all that stuff to put that in the budget, to just totally eradicate the debt. And, and to be honest, the U.S. government is actually going to lose money on this deal, right? Because they accrue the interest. 
but that's okay, right? Because, you know, for those people that complain that government's too big, one of the reasons why it's big is because they get trillions of dollars in taxes, right? And there's a whole other conversation. I wrote a blog about it years ago about tax rates and all that kind of stuff. You know. But and there are people sounding alarmed that the IRS is hiring 87,000 people, whatever. whatever. (laughs) You know. Ever since the Civil War, income taxes have been a part of American life, period. And we've had taxes on stuff since this country has been founded. We just didn't have an income tax until then. And so, you know, you give your share to the government. Which leads me to another uh, concern about these people that are complaining so we got the people who got loans from during COVID complaining. They got hundreds of thousands of dollars in loans, some even millions. And they're complaining publicly. It's one thing to grumble at your local diner or Starbucks or whatever, or at your house. But when you get out there publicly and say it, don't be mad, one, that we put your business out there. Don't be mad that somebody found out that you got this amount of money forgiven when you decided to criticize a black kid getting a $20,000 debt forgiveness. That's one. But the other part is this notion that people say, well, I'm paying for these folks. And that some have even gone to say that these people have made bad decisions, financial decisions. So it was a bad financial decision to take out a loan to go to college to better your life. That was a bad financial decision? Really? Really? If scholarships are limited as as many scholarships as there are out there it's still a limit and so there are some people that can get Pell Grants and we have documented that Pell Grants impact is not the same so the, the they put out a chart that showed that basically from 1980 to 2021, the cost of going to college just tripled. Pell Grants on average used to cover about 80% of a student's tuition or cost to go to college, 80%. It's now down to 33. So if more money hasn't been put into Pell Grants, which was a big debate that I had when I was running for the U.S. Senate because the guy that was I was running against who was this icon and legend in Mississippi consistently voted against increasing Pell Grants. Yet he, he would give money 
to all these different colleges and just about every college in the state of Mississippi has a name, a building named after him. But he would vote against the very essence of why the college even exists. And that's for the students. He would vote against Pell Grant increases like he was breathing. It was instinctual. And that, to me, was fundamentally wrong. And so, just like the minimum wage hasn't kept up, Pell Grants haven't kept up. So, people have to take out loans if they want to go to school, if they don't get enough scholarships to cover everything. And when we talk about college, we're not just talking about tuition. We're also talking about eating. We're talking about having a place to sleep. Those are costs that you have to pay for. That's what we call room and board, or at least that's what we used to call it when I was in school. And sometimes you have to fight the finance office or whoever to make sure that they knew that that scholarship covered that, right? Anyway. Um, yeah, so this whole notion about financial, bad financial decisions. Now, if you're saying they've made bad financial decisions since they've been out, I, I don't know. You know, bills come regardless of your financial situation, right? I don't know if it's necessarily a decision. But it is what it is. And especially in a place like Mississippi, right? Which is basically acknowledged as the poorest state in the United States. Everybody brags if you if you go to a Mississippi Chamber of Commerce, one of the things they'll brag about is the cost of living being low. Well the cost of living is low because you don't pay people a lot. Here in Atlanta, Georgia, well, let me put it this way. If you had a salary in Mississippi and you go to Atlanta in Jackson, Mississippi, and you go to Atlanta, Georgia, same job. If you are with the same company or just, you know, same profession, whatever, you're going to see, you're going to have to make 24 to 25% more than what you made in Jackson in order to live the way that you were living in Jackson. 25%. So, it's no surprise that there are people in Mississippi struggling to pay off student loans because their counterpart in Atlanta is making 25% more than they are. Now, of course, the equalizer is that stuff is higher in Atlanta than it is in Jackson because people are making more money. And I'll try to address that if I have time before we go off the air. But, so you can't really say that these people 
But because there are black people involved and the black people are going to get the majority of money, there is this incredible misconception in America that black people make bad financial decisions on a regular basis. And that's not true. One could argue, if you want to go there, one could argue that a bad financial decision is for a black person to stay in America, right? But when you really look at the world, this is one of the best opportunities we have. So we're not going anywhere, but this disparity between for every $100 a white person makes, we make five. How dare you say that we're making bad financial decisions when we're $95 in the hole compared to you? That means you have $95 more disposable income than the average black person. So again, when you sit there and talk about I don't like when when people talk about white privilege. When you say things like that, you exacerbate what white privilege is. You That's a classic example. Well, why can't they do this? And why do they always do that? that well, black folks, they're just big consumers. That's how they are. The United States is the biggest consumer in the world. And guess who makes up the majority of the population of the United States? White folks. These major corporations don't sell to black people or indigenous people or other people of color. They don't just market them. White folks spend their money. One of my favorite commercials of all time is this guy, and he's talking about the house and the country club he's a member of and all these different things. And he says, I'm in debt to my eyeballs. It was a commercial for a loan company saying we can get you out of their debt, right? So don't don't insult me by saying that me trying to pay off a student loan is a bad financial decision. I don't know where that comes from other than illogic, right? I don't know. And then the other thing that kind of irks me is this thing about I'm I'm paying for it. So I assume you're saying that because you pay taxes and the federal government's involved, then that means the federal money is going to help people pay off debts. So obviously you have been in a financial situation in life where you've never defaulted on a loan or you've never uh, missed payments on something uh, and you get charged off for it, right? So when you get charged off for something, that means that the company has made a decision that they're not going to get any money from you ever again, ever in life. You may have paid starting off, paid your down payment, paid your first few months, first couple of years, whatever. But then 
you get to a point where you can't pay it for whatever reason. And the company, after soliciting you and reaching out to you and all that, if every communications thing possible, they've made a decision that you can't pay it off or you won't pay it off. So they charge it off. They write it off. They write it as a loss. So when you write it off as a loss, that means you're not going to get any money from it. No money is going to be exchanged. So when people say that they're going to pay for it, then that's a bad financial decision because if you're paying for it and the company is writing it off, then you're just giving the company money for no reason for something that doesn't even pertain to you. So you're not paying for people to have their loans forgiven. That's not how that works. The United States government has made a decision that we are going to, for a lot of people, write off $20,000. We're just going to charge that off. Don't worry about it. That's fine. By the way, since Joe Biden has been president, nobody's been paying on their student loans. Nobody. <laughs> just for the record. And nobody will pay anything until January the 1st of 2023. Nobody's been paying. Because, or nobody's been compelled to pay. Let's put it that way. If you paid anyway, great. You were making that kind of money during COVID. Cool. You decided to get it out the way. Fine. If you refinanced it with SoFi or somebody else, fine. But as far as the U.S. Department of Education is concerned, they haven't been asking for any money. So there's that. But then the other thing is that doesn't seem to get caught up in the in the thought process of the people when they say, I'm paying for it. And you're making an argument that it's through your taxes that you're paying for it. Well, guess what? A lot of the people that are getting this debt forgiveness have been paying taxes too. They have been paying their taxes. They have. If they haven't, they'll be dealt with because of all these new IRS agencies coming up. But I would, I would bet my life that the majority of these people have paid their taxes. If they got a job, taxes are being taken out every check. Medicare, Social Security, and income. They've been paying taxes. Now, for whatever reason, they may or may not have knocked down that debt on that student loan, but they've been paying their taxes. So their money is in the pot too. So if their money is in the pot and they qualify for this debt forgiveness, they're part of the 43 million, which by the way, is only 13% of the population. We're not talking 
70% of the population, 90% of 13% of the population is going to get this. And I can get some people upset, you know, upset that they're not going to. And I'm getting ready to address that real quick. But these people have put money in the pot. So they should get it too. If if I pay for a raffle ticket, <laughs> I pay my $2 in a raffle ticket and you paid $100 a raffle ticket, but I win, oh well. <laughs> I pay my $2 too. So I won. Get over it quickly. Now, for the people who have made a lot of money because they went to professional schools, $20,000 probably is not going to mean a whole lot. But something is better than nothing. Right? I guess that's the advantage of being black. We've learned how to make something out of nothing. And when we get a little something, we're grateful. At least the majority of us are. Even the younger people. I know people have this view of Gen Z and whatever other alphabet letter you want to use for children or young people. But for the most part, especially in the black community, when we get a little something we're appreciative of getting it. So I know that, and and one of my friends threw a meme out there, (laughs) showed this woman with a bucket of water trying to put out a fire in a whole (laughs) parking lot, Um, you know, or park or wherever it was that was on fire. I get it. But I also know that brother and, and other people appreciate the effort and wish we could do more. And I think that's the biggest thing is that we need to get to a point where we can do more. And I think the president has a plan to do that. I know he does. So no, we didn't get like the Morehouse students that were fortunate to have Robert Smith show up at their, uh, commencement and get our all of our debt taken away. But it was because of people like Robert Smith that made actions like that and, and brought it to light and people like Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, who were running on that. We got something. And so sometimes, again, giving is not just putting out money. Giving is helping people take care of problems and it's about putting out ideas. So I got to go, but I just wanted to throw that out there. I just felt that needed to be put into the atmosphere until next time.